Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 110 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here today. And for today's show, I'll be speaking on building a coaching lens and philosophy. So it might not sound that exciting. I don't know. I'm excited about it. Uh, mostly my vision for this show was to dig a little bit into my own brain and mind and share with you all how I got to where I am. Uh, a lot of people have asked me for coaching questions or advice in the coaching industry and, and, and things like that. Or how do I, uh, a lot of it is very professional. How do I, where do I go and how do I get a job and those types of ideas but ultimately, uh, whether you're young in the coaching industry and, and looking to move up into your first job or whether you're already established and just looking to get better and refine your craft, I'm always thinking about uh, how we build our own coaching lens and philosophy. And I, I am a strong believer that some of the, the biggest figures in our industry uh, or even on the fringe or outside of our industry, I always think of like Bruce Lee, for example, what defined him wasn't necessarily his training methods, it was the philosophy behind those training methods. And ultimately, it's many of those things that make up uh, how we end up training athletes, the experience that our athletes get. And so for today's show, I wanted to dig in a little bit into how I got to where I am. So if you are familiar with the way that I coach athletes, if you've, been, you've been around Just Fly Sports, you listen to this podcast. Uh, I, I think I've taken a journey that may be a little bit different than most, and I hope the differences in my own journey might offer you guys some insight and in, that might help your own coaching. I know I've certainly learned from the coaching processes and journeys of a lot of other coaches in what makes them who they are, and it makes my own coaching better. So that's today I wanted to share a little bit about how I got to where I am. So uh, I want to start with my own early training um, and then how that has kind of set the standpoint for how I see training now. And I think it's really cool to dig back into if you're building a coaching standpoint or you, you're looking at your training program, you're thinking, how did I get here to kind of dig into some early training um, inputs and influences. And, and I was just having a, a phone conversation with David Weck, who was on a few episodes ago the other day, and we were talking about the idea of sprinting being a pull, not a push. And I know as long as I've been in coaching, I've always heard the idea of things like push the ground away, and it never resonated with me for some reason. I, I heard it, and I'm just like, I don't, I just don't feel like that 
works that well. I, I've even done things where I've, I've taken out a free lap timing system and done a 10 yard sprint and, and focused on a variety of different cues that coaches will give. And one of the first ones was push the ground away. And I ended up, I ran significantly faster using pulling cues compared to pushing cues. And ultimately, uh, not super mu- the point of this podcast, I'm trying not to get away from this, but um, pulling is when you pull, timing is there. When you push, timing is off. There's research that would back that up in, in vertical jumping and the instructions that athletes were given and how the force manifests itself. Uh, but anyways, I, I was thinking, well, why did I arrive at that point? And, and me and David were talking about it a little bit. And one of the, the things that I, I looked at is, well, one of the first big influences in my own coaching life was a book called The Science of Jumping, written by, I believe, a guy named Tom Butler, who, in hindsight, I look at that book, that guy was a genius, and he was into it, and he learned by tasting his own cooking, doing everything himself. He had a, was in a huge, like, motorcycle accident, had to, like, repair himself from from scratch, almost. I, I, I believe similar things, like, with Jay Schrader, I think, happened. It's, it's amazing what happens to us when we are faced with extremely difficult circumstances physically and must overcome, I, I think it completely shapes, um, on the topic of this episode, it has a huge defining instance in how we create our own programming. Uh, but anyways, uh, one of the big things in the book, and this was when I was 16, I'm, I'm looking at jumping, and, and it was saying that jumping is not a push. And maybe we're talking too, like, most specifically here. But jumping is not a push. You do not push into the ground. You pull yourself off the ground by swinging your arms. And just intuitively, by by going through the jumping myself and then doing the depth jumps in the program and those types of things, I'm like, whoa, this is totally a pull. It's not a push. If I think about pushing in the ground and jumping, I'm not going to go anywhere. It's, and, and then the book would talk about the segmentation of, of how you create a jump. It's a whip. Your, your head starts the process, your arms, your spine, your hips, your knees extend, and finally your calves finish it. It's like this giant moving whip in each limb adds to the next limb and that's a pull it's not a push if you push you can harm the segmentation effect and that crack at the end of the whip and that always stuck with me and I think that was one of the reasons that I've kind of thought how I've thought when it comes to coaching and cueing and so uh, I also one of the things that I think is interesting with me uh, that I think a lot of coaches may not have and whether this is a good thing or a bad thing I think in, in some ways it's a little bit of both but uh, growing up, I was as into training as anyone could possibly be. Uh, I write, re- reading all the books, getting things out of the back of Slam Magazine, looking for whatever jump programs was out there. And I never really had a formal strength coach through high school and college. The closest I had was I took, I decided to take the strength and conditioning class my senior year of high school. Uh, it was offered and and. So I, I was like, all right, yeah, I should just take it. I mean, I actually had these reservations even back then just because I was uh, very, and I didn't overcome this for years, and maybe I'll talk about this later on, but very arrogant in my own training and knowledge of training. I, I mean, I, I think I am naturally um, gifted in terms of being intuitive with my own body and training and how it affects it. I'm not as good as some people. I've met people in industry who are far more intuitive than me, but I, I had a little ego issue, but I took it. And it was, um, the class was based off of Husker power and it was something like Monday, Thursday, you do Olympic lifts and upper body and, and Tuesday, Friday, you do squats and deadlifts and all these things. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm never going to survive this. This is a lot of volume the way it's listed. So I think I, I slacked off two of those four days. I kind of treated it as two days were heavy and two days were light. And 
I actually made really good gains through that, but I just did that for a fall and then the next, um, the, the latter half of basketball season and the upcoming spring semester, I, I just went back to kind of doing my own thing a little bit and it worked out pretty well. Like I, in, in hindsight, I think that if I would have gone through a formal strength and conditioning the whole year where weights were in significant volume, I, I don't think I would have responded like I did. Uh, similar with college as well, um, I, we had a, a track coach who was very good and he wrote up a program and I, I, I did it occasionally. I would make it my own here and there, but um, it, was, it wasn't like hyper volume or anything like that. And I was able to have a little autonomy in the process and I'm grateful for that. Anyways, uh, so my formation is not one who came up through a, a formal SNC, and so I didn't really start to understand what that was truly like until I uh, kind of hit the ground running and, and got a full-time job. I had a lot of kind of preconceptions before that. I had internships with uh, Division One Strength and Conditioning, Division Three Strength and Conditioning, Personal Training, uh, so I, I had a good piece of it all, but I never... I've I've really just been learning on my feet in many ways over the last seven years of what a a full time strength and conditioning position is like. So, uh, anyways, that I I also say that um, I I did have the part of a strength coach at my job at Wilmington College as well. But again, that was um that was me just kind of running it based off of what I felt was going to work the best. So I, I've been more influenced by track and field when I was in graduate school. So I I did my undergraduate exercise science, didn't learn a lot of anything uh, with that degree, as I'm sure many people would say the same thing. Uh, no discredit to the university. I just think that it's it's just lack of practicality really um, is common in a lot of programs. Not that there's not good programs. There's certainly a lot of good programs out there. Uh, but going to grad school, I'm like, okay, I want to either do strength and conditioning or track and, or I want to be a track coach. And, and I told my graduate advisor that I, I want to do one or the other. I don't know yet. And he had said, well, you really need to make a a pretty hard decision on what you want to do and so I'm like okay and so I just decided I'm gonna spend time in the weight room interning and I'm also gonna try to get in with the track program or the track team and and see where I want to go and what I want to do and at the time I was much more uh, obsessed if you will more so than that like technique and track and field events that wasn't very interesting to me as I went throughout um, high school and, and college and I just remember hearing people offer cues at, at meets and things and I, I never really understood what they were getting at I always felt like my technique and what I was able to do was pretty good without having a lot of coaching and that does pay respect I think to what the human body can do outside of coaching and to be very careful when you do cue people um, but anyways I, I never was really truly attracted by by the cue sets and maybe that's because it's probably because there was nobody who ever there was no instance of anyone who ever cued me in sprinting or jumping or anything really outside of maybe like throwing or complex events like if I would mess around with pole vault who really was able to change my performance right there through the queuing process because uh, it's not it's not the easiest thing to do and in my later um, my early 30s I have had that experience through coaches like Adarian Barr and it blows my mind and now biomechanics has actually been one of the biggest shifts and things that I, I think about now. But uh, back then, I was, it was more about the programming. How do you set up your weeks and months and years to get this ultimate effect? And so I, I was kind of torn between the two. I spent time in the weight room. And honestly, the internships I had in strength and conditioning were not very stimulating to me. And not that strength and conditioning is, uh, I mean, it's, 
an awesome field. I'm grateful every day for it. And it's as complex as you want it to be. I think I was just in situations early on that everything was treated extremely simply and there was no explanation offered for what anybody was doing. And that was the big thing that turned me off to early internships in strength and conditioning. Like someone would be doing a push press with dumbbells and I would ask the coach, why aren't their feet leaving the ground? You want to be reflexive and explosive. The coach was saying, just push through your toes all the way to the top. Feet don't come off the ground. And I was like, well, why? And they had no clue. Like, oh, that's just the way you do it to be the most powerful. And some some answer that clearly would indicate they hadn't really thought through it. And so, and very similar to with my other internship, I, I did one um, at a, a local division one school in Ohio. And I just was very, it really equated to giving athletes maybe two points on a, a lift here or there and then going around and motivating athletes, which I actually had a hard time with that. I learned a lot of, about professionalism, but everything was packaged in a way that was almost too simplistic, didn't offer very much explanation. And at the time, that, that really turned me off. And so I decided to go the track and field route with still a hand in strength and conditioning, which I ended up doing both actually at my first place of employment, which was really awesome. And, and I love the switch too. I love being able to work with the basketball team in the fall, doing their strength and conditioning, and then move, switching gears into track and field the rest of the year. It was an awesome balance. And, and each uh, process really helped the other. So uh, that's kind of where, that's where I started in, in that. And uh, as, I, as I kind of moved through the system, uh, I moved on from uh, being a full-time track and field coach into full-time strength and conditioning and I originally, I, I, I think that my process as I've gone through full-time uh, SNC has really been a defining point of my life. Like I, 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 I love track and field, but I'm, I'm so grateful that I've been on the other side of things and I've been able to learn tremendously in that. Cause it's like you, when you're in track and field, you, you have a hand in everything. You do the, the biomechanics, you do the track training, you do the weight training, you do the recruiting you, you do a lot. And I also coached and, and was just doing intern stuff for SNC when I was a full-time track coach. Uh, when I was able to hone in on just being a strength coach, you can really look at all the little pieces in, in huge detail. And you are attuned to things that you wouldn't have tuned into before. And uh, honestly, I, I would say by this measure of like going into the details, uh, I back when I was like, bored by watching a coach say okay you teach a clean do dip pop and drop or something and i'm like okay wow that's not that complicated like let's do something stimulating let's do some programming let's you know let's dig in um now being able to really dig into the details and observe and know what to observe it really has changed my mindset and uh, especially too like if i'm bored in the weight room now it's because i'm not stimulating the athlete plain and simple it's because we we got past some of the main work and we're into like some auxiliary work that is kind of, I would say like mind, if we're in a, in a mindless auxiliary work, do these three sets of 10 pal-off presses and a, a rotator cuff and arm curls or something, that's not, that's, that athlete's just going through the motions. To me, I, I mentally have a hard time being into that. But if all of a sudden, instead of you're going to do pal-off press or, or whatever, and if you've listened to the David Weck podcast, you, you know my thoughts on movements like that. Or just, just movements that are like you take, it's a very simple and very low intensity movement that you're doing because someone else said it was good. And when I do that myself and in my own body, I'm like, what is this accomplishing? 
but finding things that allow athletes to stay fully immersed and fully checked in throughout the whole program is of the essence. Because as soon as you are getting to the point where you're going through the motions in the workout and you're just you know checking off boxes, the efficiency and the effectiveness of what you do in your session is dropping off the map. And I, I really started to link that to why if I'm not stimulated, usually the athletes aren't either. And so that's actually been a really a big change for me in the last year or two to find, okay. And, and every time I've seen that happening, even in live space in the weight room, we're going through things and I feel like we're just checking boxes and I can tell people aren't mentally engaged. And that's a big Jay Schrader thing. Are you the pipes? Are you stimulating an athlete physically, intellectually, um, emotionally, spiritually, and uh, psychologically? I might have repeated one, but if you're not hitting those boxes, I've, I, I will drop really fast in terms of uh, my own like okay what in terms of my own um, intent and my own my own engagement in the session so I, I try to check myself and check the session before we fall into this point where we get we get to doing mindless work because if you're doing mindless work in the weight room it's like well, what am I teaching my, how am I teaching myself to play how am I teaching myself to be at an intensity in competition and so that's been a huge it's almost like the last uh, seven years of, of doing this I, I've gotten to this point and, and it's changed everything. It's, so uh, I wanted to get into too. So uh, as I've gone the last few years, what are my, what's my lens? What's my background? How have I gotten to the place where I have? And then how has that changed and gotten turned? So uh, my background, track and field athlete, jumper, elastic, not that strong in the weight room, not that much horsepower. I really, my lifts aren't terrible. Like I've deadlifted 405, clean 270. It's... I'm definitely more of a puller than a squatter. Uh, but, I mean, I've had lifts that are okay. I've gotten under 100 kilos in snatch before. couldn't stand up with it. But I have okay lifts for a guy who weighs um, like a high jumper's weight, basically. But I wouldn't consider myself strong, truly strong. And so not being able to put myself in that feeling of, of really defining myself by being able to squat 500 plus or bench 300 plus has probably had an impact. I wouldn't say probably it, it does have an impact on how my philosophy formed. I, I think some people would look at me and how I've um, mitigated the weights in the process. I want my athletes to be strong. The whole question just is, is strength, is how you get there a band-aid? It's all about how you get there. How do you get to the point you're being strong? If you get there in a point that prioritizes a, a ton of just hypertrophy-based volume, um, a ton of maximal strength work that will cause uh, other things to come at that expense, the expense of that work, if that makes sense. And also too, how do I make an athlete stronger in a manner that fits with their neurotype? You've heard Christian Thibodeau on the show. If you hit their neurotype, they will get strong much easier <laughs> than if, than if you don't. And every athlete has a really a button that makes them strong. I have athletes who barely gain anything on a typical program. That's, that's, focused on less than six reps but then when we do one by 20 type work their strength takes off and it's like they, I've had athletes who are like man I don't know what it was like to be strong until I did one by 20 but then I have other athletes who are wired a little bit differently and so a lot of people look at me I wouldn't say a lot of people but people can look at me in that manner it's not that I don't uh, love at getting athletes stronger I was just talking um, I was talking with a buddy of mine who worked with Jay Schrader and, and talking about Adam Archuleta's work and training and and how uh, explosive he was and, and you know, what he jumped and sprinted and all these things. Uh, but he was also really strong and benched over 500, squatted over 600 as a safety. 
and those are good numbers. So I, I've never, um, I, and I think that's been a little bit of a pendulum to me. I'll, I'll mention that that's been my first pendulum in this field is I, I would say I was definitely on the pure uh, strength side of things early on in the point where I was early coaching track. And I said, I want to get my athletes strong in the weight room. I want them to get better at squats. I want them to get better at cleans, uh, bench. I want that. I want their numbers to go up as much as I can. Um, while also obviously doing all the other work, not just, just sitting in the weight room. We didn't spend more than 40 minutes in the weight room twice a week in many cases. And we would do general strength on the field and those types of things. But it was early experiences where I saw athletes get stronger and not get faster that really set things off for me because coming into that, I, I had really thought, and, and it's true, I, I used the weight room and plyometrics and it got me faster. And I was like, well, shoot, if it got me faster, it should get you faster too. Um, but it's not the case with everybody. And I think the way that I actually got that strength was, was through a fairly minimal dose of it, looking to what I did later in my life, later in my 20s. I didn't do that much I lifted, but I didn't do that much of it to get faster. I would lift like twice a week and just do one good set of 10 or, or, or neural paradigms where it's like three sets of three, but it was, I never spent a lot of time in the weight room. It was just enough and just what I needed, but seeing athletes get stronger and not get faster was a huge, huge thing for me that kind of shaped how I started to then dig into, okay, well, what is important? And then I started getting into uh, movements outside of squats like hip thrusts. The first time I used hip thrusts, which was, I want to say my last year at Wilmington College, like within a month, I was seeing changes not only in the athletes' times on the track, but also how they said they felt about the their speed and where they felt the speed coming from. They said they felt their glutes stronger at the end of races, their pelvic position was better. And, and we didn't go heavy in that stuff either. I mean, we we were just using like under 200. We didn't, you know, we weren't doing the 700 pound hip thrust. And and it brings me back to what Jerome Simeon said. It's, it's more about the pattern than the weight, especially with that stuff. Like they're, the the air, the the mechanism of a hip thrust and sprinting will very quickly part ways. Uh, I mean, it's fundamentally different, but it's the basic baseline coordination and the variation that's the most helpful there. I, I'm pretty convinced. Uh, I I love that exercise for for speed, but I don't think it has to be as heavy as a lot of people make it out to be. And you have different research. I definitely check out Brett Contreras' latest podcast with me where he goes into the nuts and bolts of that, some of the conflicting studies and those things. But so my pendulum swung basically from getting your one at max up is awesome. You you really need to and it's always going to be you know directly tied to your performance too. Wait, maybe this doesn't help that much for some athletes. Also I had um but I had a high jumper from Sweden. Maybe he's listening to this, Eric. Uh, maybe you're listening to this. He got a lot stronger. He hadn't really lifted coming into college lifted weights, uh, got him a lot stronger and his long jump had got up, but he didn't necessarily have a lot of experience with long jump coming in. Like he had, he was more of a high jumper for a long time and his high jump definitely didn't get better. I think he got like three inches worse and he had put on 10 pounds and got a lot stronger. And that happens to a ton of high jumpers, by the way, in college, you, you lift weights and get, I guess, stronger (laughs) in the weight room and gain weight and you don't jump higher. And so uh, again, that, that really got my wheels training. Like these were things that happened to my athletes that made me stop and think and it's always multifactorial right but I've always been searching for for better ways to do things and so uh, it was towards the end of that I, I read the book Easy Strength Dan John and Pavel if you've seen it in my my book list like my articles on book lists it's it's up there it's always up there it's one of the greatest sports training books I've ever read 
and it's just it's just wisdom defined like I think we can spend a lot of times, you know, racking our brains over all these research studies and Twitter and this whole like mess of the way that different people interpret different things. And, and the human body is a soft science too. It's like any research project with, with humans in training is a lot more complex than a very like hardline, um, more of, I would guess I would call a hardline, less variables research project. And so interpreting that, you can drive yourself nuts sometimes. It's not to say I don't value research. I certainly do. But I would, I get a lot more personally out of reading books by people who have just been in the trenches, in the field, tons of anecdotes. They highlight the research when it's uh, needed. And that book is awesome. I love it. And it got me thinking to my, my position then fundamentally changed to make the weight room so that you feel better walking out of it than walking into it. And so that's been one of my fundamental tenets, no matter what sport I work with, track and field, swimming, uh, it's, it's always, I want you to feel better walking out than walking in. Even, even if it's fatiguing, you hear about like, if you watch some of the Evo sports stuff, uh, like, like there was a, there's a tennis player, Jay Schrader worked with and talks about, she talks about, I did like a thousand or an hour worth of glute ham raises or something like that. And, and the way they do glute ham raises is very, um, like like muscle switching on and off and very high velocity and things that would offer more um, recovery to the nervous system, so to speak, with the full lengthening of the muscle and full shortening, more so than just shortening. We t- most stuff in the weight room is more on the shortening paradigms than the, than the on off full lengthening full shortening paradigms. But she like she's like I thought I was wrecked and then I went on the tennis court and was just getting every ball running down everything and felt awesome. And so w- there's many ways to feel good or better coming out of the weight room but that was one thing that really fundamentally changed the way I thought of it and then the way that easy strength has set up very small volumes to accomplish that and that's not to say it's like it's weak training or something because it's not high volume it's just it's just the right volume the same thing that one by 20 is for many athletes it's the right volume and I, I love Dan John's stuff just doing two sets of five or or three sets of three or five sets of two and not getting um you know, not basically not not blowing it out in the weight room in the, with the barbell work in the sense that it's going to impact whatever else you do. And so that was a huge shift of mine. And then it set my pendulum down on the let's not hit, lift heavy weights. Let's not get emotionally charged up to hit weights uh, end of the spectrum. And then even to the point where athletes don't really my maximal strength considerations for athletes was almost going down and down and down. And sometimes it's like, and I find this, it's it's very easy to be like this, to be, those of us who I'd say are on the fringe, it's very easy to be like, I'm out here on the fringe and, and I'm right and you guys are all wrong type thing. It's very easy to do that. Uh, and it's almost, I almost got a little bit uh, bitter in a way towards athletes who always wanted to come in the weight room and just lift as heavy as they possibly could. Because I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're you're emotionally putting too much energy into this set you're going to hit a valley the next day or two. It's going to be harder for you to learn your sports skills, all this and that. And I, I was in that world for, I would say, a few years. Um, but I've, I've, I've come out of it a little bit. Like I said, I, I want athletes to be strong. It's all about how you get there. And it's through the neurotyping system, too, and, and, and looking at an athlete who seeks dopamine. I, and, and even looking at my own experiences with heavy weights and potentiation. If you can use heavy weights and get potentiation then that's where it's at and you don't want to build your strength by living above 85 percent but if you can find the times to potentiate yourself correctly and that is an art it's not as much of a science as i think we'd we'd like to be able to have safety and comfort doing 
and, and especially if you're in an individual sport, be it track or swimming, I think that the rules might be a little bit different for some other sports or a lot different in terms of not hitting valleys in training. You, you don't want to, you don't want to hit that peak very often. And then the subsequent valley, like Milan Jovanovic was talking about, but uh, long story short, I think for those athletes who get potentiation, I'm certainly much, I'm much more friendly uh, than I used to in the last few years towards athletes who do want to go heavy because otherwise they are not motivated and motivation and, and hitting those pipes is probably the most important part of the whole system in the weight room. So finding ways to do that, that uh, reduces and selective ways to do that, that fits in progress with maintaining adaptation, not hitting valleys too often afterwards and all that. Uh, so that's, that's where I've been uh, with maximal strength and how my, um, my, my philosophy has kind of grown throughout the years. Uh, so I also wanted to talk a little bit about uh, philosophy on periodization, arranging training. How is that? Uh, where am I coming from from that? And uh, If you've bought the book uh, Vertical Ignition, you probably have gotten a little bit of a kind of a taste of, of even back in high school, like always thinking about uh, what's my best training split? Like I got the science of jumping and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do plyometrics on Monday. I'm going to go to open gym basketball on Thursday and then do a bunch of dunks after basketball. And then I'll do some sprints with this Don BB thigh trainer on Saturday. And I gained like crazy doing that. I was doing deadlifts with the um, deadlifts, four sets of eight, um, also on Mondays with the plyometric workout. So I was smashed after that stuff. And, and science would say too, oh, you're doing plyos, you should do low reps on that same day. And that's not right, but it worked just fine for me. I mean, the deadlifts were not the biggest stress of the day. The plyos were, and the body adapts to the biggest stress. And if anything, the deadlifts didn't add to the nervous system stress because they were sets of eight. Um, cause that's what the science of jumping said to do to start with four sets of eight. So I'm like, okay. And <laughs> uh, so I've always been really into that. Um, I've had a few, you know, I've gone through the Charlie Francis training schemes, uh, w- which is like the high low, uh, method. I've gone to the Verkashansky themes, which is more like something neural four days a week. And at the end of the day, I, I think I can kind of, in, in working as a strength coach, uh, you, I only have say on the the days that the athletes are in the weight room. So it really takes a lot of that. That framework is kind of out of your hands. So I'll just speak to um, just on general, like training arrangement and periodization. Actually, I'm kind of falling this into micro. I'm diverting this into micro cycles, smaller training cycles, when I kind of have meant to make this a big, the big training cycle. That's where I was meant to go. I'm kind of diverting it. So um, like, it's been amazing to me in working as a strength coach. I, I used to think, that I've never been someone to ever, ever write the whole year down before. I've seen coaches who do that, write out the whole training year, every training session. And back when I saw it like 12, 13 years ago, I thought it was crazy that anyone would do that. Because I've seen people do that 12, 13 years ago, the whole uh, season's written down, like every intensity level even. I I saw a guy who had every day's intensity written for the whole year, and I'm like, how is this going to, I was like, this is just too much. I, I, I didn't really have too much to say as to why, but I mean, if you, every athlete's going to respond differently, you have to adjust, obviously. Um, I've always been a, a right, uh, have your basic th- two to three month plan and knowing where you're going to go, know what your accumulation, your intensification and your realization is going to look like. And, but then beyond that, just go a month at a time and, and assess even on the week and on the day. And I, that's, I've, used to think that you, I would guess I used to say you at least have to have even that plan to have a successful program. But the longer I've been in this, you listen to some of John Kiley's thoughts on periodization. 
as well as just like the ideas of if you look into like um, I, I wouldn't I don't know if I'd say quantum physics but like the chaos theory and fractals and the basic like you won't train the same whatever training program worked for you a certain way today you do that same training program four or five months later it's not going to work for you the exact same way life is always changing it's always different and I've seen training programs that were not and, and this is very common in the swim world is t- for coaches to write um, to write workouts up on the day frequently they know where they're going and they know the general plan but I don't think people lose anything from that it works fine in fact it works great it's uh and, and almost when you go to, so it's it's an interplay right like but I've definitely gotten away from this thing where you have to have all these phases you have to have your hypertrophy phase lined up and then you have to have the strength phase lined up and then the power phase lined up and even if you did do that you should have a little bit of blend in each phase no doubt um but i've learned from swimming big time and i've seen athletes get amazing results without the eight week block all lined up (laughs) really nice and fancy i realize it doesn't have to be like that and so all of our minds work different ways some of us are more organizers than others and there's there's no doubt that's the case um but I've, i've definitely learned that periodization doesn't have to be as neat and tidy as, as I think that we think it does. It's just, and if anything, what I've, where I've gone to, and this being through the neurotyping system observations I've made over time, um, I, the way I like to do things more so now, in, and I write a block at a time, I, but I will typically look at the average neurotype response of the group. So what is the average set and rep range and volume and intensity that you as a group respond to and then build my training off of that, not off of, because if your group responds better to uh, more of a hypertrophy style of training, or you know, if you're not trying to gain weight, just do less sets. If they respond better to higher reps, then don't do a hypertrophy phase than a max strength phase. They're going to get burnt up in the max strength phase. They're not going to see as great of gains. You need to build your program around the general set and rep range that works for your athletes and you can periodize through changing exercises too. Like that's how I know Jeff Moyer talks about his use of the one by 20 with novice athletes. You look at the bonder truck training system. where really the only thing that changes from cycle to cycle for the most part is to, that I believe is the exercises. And so there's a lot of ways to do periodization. Uh, that's not saying I keep the same sets and reps every single cycle, but I've become less over time, from phase to phase, I've shifted the sets and reps less, like the emphasis of the sets and reps less than in the past. And and I try to focus on what works for the athlete right now, more so than saying this phase will make the next phase better. Um, there was someone posting some cool research. Um, and again, I, I research can be uh, research can be awesome. You can get muddied in it. I, I personally think this study was awesome because it resonated with things that I've seen and that I believe. And it was basically throwing the same group of athletes through a max strength phase and then through a high speed phase and seeing how that impacted rate of force development. Well, what do you know? Um, Like half of the athletes had awesome RFD response in the max strength phase. And again, going back to where my thoughts are on heavier strength, like some athletes do respond well to this. uh, And some athletes feed off this and you need to understand and realize that and realize what motivates them. Some, but then there was about half the other athletes that did very well off of the high speed phase, the high uh, velocity phase in terms of rate of force development, whereas the 
the rest of the group didn't do as well. So it's like, if I'm making a program for that group, um, I need to kind of, well, and obviously you have different athletes, right? So that's where the rub is. Do you have different groups? Do you try to keep everyone the same? You can't always do that. But generally speaking, if I can, if I can get away with it, I want to stick with the base program, the base system that serves my group of athletes the best. And so what, whatever set rep velocity average that is, obviously I, I do think that there is an interplay between capacity uh, of some sort, capacity, and then the realization of that capacity. There's always going to be that uh, for the most part. I mean, it's a little bit different in the bondage hook system where it's just go till you adapt to the same stimulus. But I've, I do like some sort of capacity and then realization of some, on some level in team sports, it's less in individual sports. Maybe it's more, uh, but that's kind of where I've had it. Just build to the athlete. What do they respond to and build your training from that? Cause if you build off of preconceived notions of what people are supposed to respond to, um, it might not work super well for you. And that's that's one thing that strength and conditioning has really offered me that I don't think I would have learned as a track coach. As a track coach, too, your your um, your athletes and events are going to be usually of a very similar neurotype, where in team sports you get a very mixed bucket of different types of athletes. And it makes it fun. It makes it fun to really kind of get the vibe of what the group is, what do people respond to and try to program appropriately. So I uh, already talked about heavy lifting plyometrics. I I used to be, I wanted to talk about how my philosophy and everything has come along with that too. I used to be, and I still post plyo of the weeks and all these things and, and plyometrics has always been a, a really big part of me and and my programming and training. It's it's one of the things that I felt like really broke me out as an athlete. I did a depth jump program when I was 17 and put five, six inches on my vertical and now I'm windmill dunking. I'm jumping off two legs and dunking. I'm doing it's like I feel like I literally feel like Superman compared to what I was two, three months ago. And it's also that feeling, too, by the way, that is always my mission to instill in athletes. I just love seeing like the looks on people's faces or the joy of when they do something they, they thought that they weren't capable of. And so but that put this very early bias in my own brain towards plyometrics and that that was like the ultimate. And you should use plyometrics to get strong, not the other way around. And well, honestly, that does work for some people, by the way, but it doesn't work for everybody. <laughs> uh, and so that was something I learned. Um, I definitely learned once I became a full-time strength coach that I wouldn't have been able to tell you working as a track coach. And on, on top of that too, uh, plyometrics, I've come to points in my own training where, well, I'll say this, I've had athletes who I've had had immense success like really, really good success uh, doing plyometrics and not doing a whole lot of sprinting or a whole lot of their event even. Uh, at Wilmington, we didn't have an indoor track and we just rolled with it. Like we just made use of the hallways in the weight room and I had training blocks for athletes where it was really just a Verkashansky style setup and we would do weight room two days a week, plyos two days a week, do an active recovery day, like an active circuit with a lot of variability and I had athletes getting faster. I had athletes do, I had a guy uh, get second in the national meet in high jump indoors. And I don't even, could even, I could count on one hand the type of, the amount of times we practiced high jump indoors. We just did plyometrics and lifting mostly. And he seemed to like that more anyways than jumping off a wood floor, which is fundamentally different than at a meet. Um, so I had athletes who had really good success. I also had, I had athletes faster on the runway than they had been in the past. And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, maybe this is, 
this is where it's at. You know, doing these things is, is all we really need. But everything has its lifespan too. A lot of training means are good for a season in your life, especially if you've been doing your same old event strategy over and over. Like I've just been doing the same old sprint over and over. Now all of a sudden, what do you know? Two months, we're just going to hit hard, hardcore um, lifting and plyos and bounding circuits and depth jumps and all this stuff. You're going to get fast. You're going to break out of that mold. But again, that's you're going to have to go back to what you were doing at some point. Just because you're you're getting out of a rut now, you need something else. Uh, so I, I found this like too. It's and this is crazy. And this led me to my work with the Darian Bar, and and so this is how this has kind of fundamentally changed my thoughts on plyometrics. Is you look at look at don't just look at the plyometric itself. Look at the waveform and and the timing. And what I mean by that is when I was playing basketball in high school, or even I would say in in college, like when I would play pickup sometimes, I wasn't supposed to, <laughs> or volleyball. I should say volleyball. I'd play bo- volleyball or sand volleyball or things I was less likely to hurt myself with track and field in mind. Playing basketball or playing volleyball has always had an extremely strong effect on my jumping ability. And I've always noticed a hang up if basketball or volleyball is not in the program, even heck, even even stuff like racquetball. I've, I've done, we're doing racquetball once a week and just all the timing and, and nuances of moving quickly in that paradigm has been helpful for me. But unless some sort of active sport where I'm shutting off my conscious mind is there and I'm moving explosively and with timing and rhythm and sequence in multiple planes, my plyos and weightlifting just don't convert to my jumping uh, like as high as they can. And so I've had points where like my, my depth jump to hurdle hops were just off the chart. Like I was dropping off a 24 inch box, I'm jumping over a 56 inch hurdle and I'm doing all these lifts that are completely beyond what I've done before. And then I go to jump and dunk and it's good, but I was getting up higher in high school. Like, <laughs> I'm like, what are you, what, what's going on here? Like, uh, and so that was, that was like in my mid to late twenties that I've started, I got to that point and I would high jump and I would high jump like six, nine at meets, but where in college I was jumping six, 10 or, or occasionally, you know, the seven foot uh, that I, that I did get. And so it was like, there was this little bit that was just this little bit that was missing. And I was like, well, what is this little bit? I'm doing all these plyos. I'm better than I am ever was in depth jumps. I'm better than I was in weightlifting. And the missing link is waveforms and, and timing. And so I've heard even, uh, it was Aaron Plass. I remember the name. He was a high jumper in Nebraska. I was reading an article on him back in the day. And he was just talking about how uh, he's like, basketball is the best plyometric work you can workout you can do. And I remember I was like 20-something, early 20s when I was reading that. And I was like, really? No, depth jumps are the best. Hurdle hops are the best. Why is basketball the best? But the longer I've kind of gone through this game, I'm like, you know what? Basketball is a pretty darn good plyometric workout. I mean, to me, if I had to pick one or the other, uh, just playing basketball and practicing a bunch of dunks or doing a standard plyometric program, I would pick basketball and doing a bunch of dunks if like you're trying to jump higher because that's it's the timing I've even had online clients like Andy Nicholson worked with him. He's 46. I think Andy, you're 46, right? I hope I didn't mess that up if you're listening to it. But the guy can still dunk. He's amazing. He's like 5'11", 6 feet tall. He is an unreal athlete. And, and I've, when I've worked with him, he uh, he doesn't really like plyos in his program that much. He just likes to play and lift and, and practice dunking, and that works really well. And so – and. I, that's great. Like I and I've it's really changed the way. Like I still like plyos. I still put them in uh, programs. I still use them. 
but my viewpoint has changed. And so, well, let's talk waveform and timing and how this has changed for me and what I feel like this missing link is, is the main one is, is the waveforms. So in a depth jump, a hurdle hop, you are following this, this very um, symmetrical waveform where you're just going, you're doing the same projection angle, which is very vertical, let's say 70 degrees vertical, and you're landing and then you're projecting again at the same angle, 70 degrees vertical, and you're you're doing that and so same thing let's just say regular alternate like bounding you're projecting at the same angle every time uh, but when you jump you have a big to little to big waveform learn this from a Darien bar you take a big last step into a penultimate this penultimate is the small of the two steps coming together then you do a big which is the vertical projection of the body and even looking at track and field triple jump uh, a lot of coaches would say, and no discredit at all here. I, I mean, and I've, I've been out of the triple jump game for a little while. Uh, I still try to practice it when I can, but this does make sense to me. Uh, that you look at the like the world records, Jonathan Edwards or the Ukrainian uh, woman, and it's a big or a high flat high waveform. It's not low 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 or low low high, which is I think the way a lot of people would coach it. But the waveform is big little big. And that's something I've learned from Adarian Bar. It fits into a lot of things. And so when we play team sports and we aren't thinking about what we're doing, we're just letting the body go for it, we are hitting those waveforms instinctively and naturally. And it sinks into our timing, the way we use our joints, the way we use our fascial system, and the way we train strength in that specific um, realm. And then also the timing is there. So if you watch people do hurdle hops, a lot of times their arms will like lag behind a little bit in the process. They'll hit the ground and their their arms are still a little behind them. In reality, by the time you hit the ground, those arms should be at the bottom and ready to go upwards to, to hit that timing. And the timing of the arms and the legs, when we play team sports, it happens automatically. You don't even have to think about it for most people unless you have some real like coordinative shortcomings, things like that. Or maybe you have some, some a body like... Uh, ref reflexive um, and connective issues in your body that are uh, hurting your ability to do that. For the most part, your body works pretty decently well in, in timing things up uh, when you play a team sport. So timing and waveforms are a huge aspect. And so that's been one uh, mission of mine is to make my plyometrics more like what happens in team sport. And uh, Darian Barr was just showing us a little bit of that in the latest Rewire Clinic that he put on, which was really cool. And so I, and, and when you do plyometrics too, this is the cool thing. My Achilles are trash. Like I, I've actually finally gotten the point where, I mean, literally for the last four years, I've never been able to get, five, I should say five. I made a little high jumping comeback when I was 29 and I was getting, my weight room was awesome. Uh, my plyometrics were decent. But I went and I only jumped like, and I was I was down to 179 pounds, which was good for me. When I jumped seven feet, I was 176, so I was pretty excited, and I was I had some good training partners, and I was feeling good. And I only jumped six five or six six, and honestly, the a big reason why is I just my Achilles were to the point where I couldn't get the dynamic running, sprinting, even tempo sprinting, variable tempo sprinting, ankle training, bounding complex volume in to make my fascial system and through my ankles as strong as what I, it needed to be to jump high. And also I wasn't doing stuff to help my timing out. I wasn't playing team sports. Uh, I mean, I was, I was at a good level of power, no doubt, but the timing wasn't there. I wasn't getting the speed and the dynamic work because of my Achilles. It was really kicking my butt. And, 
and even the next few years, I kind of dug into like powerlifting templates. I wanted, I'm like, I'm a strength coach, so I could get, should get really strong. And I realized my body just isn't made for powerlifting template work. I need dynamic work to be my strongest. I need plyometrics to be my strongest. It's not like that for everybody. It's like that for me. Uh, but I realized like part of the reason my Achilles were just getting trashed is I've probably done at least, I don't know, like 10,000 hurdle hops and depth jumps in my day. I've probably done, you know, tens or shoot, maybe even I, I probably am just, I'm just throwing this number out, but at least tens of thousands of meters of bounding. And I've put my body through it and I'm kind of heavy for a jumper as it is. And so my Achilles had just said no throughout my early thirties. And so I'm always trying to find ways around it. And I finally have, in in this last year, I've had some really big breakthroughs on Achilles particularly. And one of those breakthroughs is doing your plyometrics not all vertical. <laughs> do them like your body does it in sport. Do a long and then a high. Do big little stuff. It actually brings me back. There was there was my senior year of, of high school. I had done the science of jumping um, in my junior year. I had great results with that. My senior year, I did strength and conditioning class. Got good results with that from that, especially after I kind of rest, took a couple of weeks off from it. My, my timing came back and everything was really good. Um, but I remember doing like, I had my dad built me these hurdles in my backyard to practice hurdles on, but I was using them for hops. And I don't know if I saw this in a Dan O'Brien decathlete training um, ma- manual or something, but it was like uh, he, I, I, I just decided, okay, I'm going to do single leg hops over these hurdles and I'm going to go long, high, long, high, long, high. And I remember just the subsequent basketball open gyms I was going to doing reverse like dunks where I brought the ball down, like kind of down to my hips with the just insane ease. I mean, and it felt like there was this link there. And I think if I've been intuitive in anything, I've always been intuitive in linking exercises to results. Uh, but going back in time, that was a big little waveform on a single leg. And I'm like, whoa, that was cool. Like, uh, you know, and, and so basically my, um, a lot of me and plyometrics and where I'm headed is just linking up, uh, basically linking up waveforms and trying to make things more specific. I still love depth jumps, but, and I love hurdle hops for height. I just think the dosage should be a little bit smaller if you are not playing team sport. Like if you're track or if you're preparing team sport athletes in the off season and they're not getting their sport much, uh, look at waveforms. That's where I've headed there. And um, so I think we're, we're starting to run a little low on time. I don't want to keep this too long. I was going to go into like, how to make coaching your own? How do I? How do I learn? How do I? How do I get my information? How do I? How did I learn in the past? How do I learn now? Uh, maybe I'll save that for another one. Uh, I would like to go in depth on that, and that'll give me some time to think about it too more, because and collect my thoughts. But the the last thing I'll go to is um, culture and psychology. So, being a I I used to be so buried in the training program so buried in the result is the result of how good you are at writing a training program and now especially with team sports even even individual sports um, and it's very trendy but culture and mindset and getting your athletes uh, to fully uh, buy in and invest emotionally and uh, as, a, as a team is huge it's it, that has to be there first before you can really uh, say how your training program impacted everything. I mean, and, and if you hear Mark Watts too, it's like, how can you even define your impact on the team as a strength coach? I do think that stuff, the stuff that Michael Zwiefel is putting out is really cool. He's going to have an article dropping on Just Fly Sports here. Actually, it probably will have dropped by the time you listen to this podcast, but just about perception and reaction and the things that Sean Mishka is doing 
and allowing athletes to become better perceivers. Now that stuff is cool. I feel like that has such a huge transfer. Not that obviously getting stronger, getting more confident, being more injury proof, being more resilient, building armor is a big impact too. But sometimes it's hard to define exactly what. Uh, but if you could say you made an impact on the the culture, that to me that is just where it's at. Uh, when I when I started in full time strength and conditioning, I <laughs> I was so like just raw and. I think I had gained a little bit of um, ability to manage a team culture. Like I, I was think I from coaching track, but when, again, there's little things that you pick up and get better at working full-time strength and conditioning and uh, just working through, I think a lot of building an awesome culture. And, and I realize this and I'm not afraid to say it. A lot of building an awesome culture for a team is a reflection of your own self-worth in many ways. Um, you can only offer what you have. And I heard that from Douglas Seal and I always remember it. And it always drives me, and so, and I've I've really been working on this the last few years, uh, especially going beyond just working with individual sports, working with team sports, um, is I want to work on me and what I have to offer so that I can serve my athletes better. Uh, it's it's cool to read all the cultural books, and I think it's really helpful, and it does help, and it is good. But ultimately, I think some of the best strides that I've made have become from working on me and, and looking at my own uh, like self-worth or reservations. If you sometimes you're, you're in a situation in the, the training environment and, and you wish you would have said something, but you didn't, or there's something you felt like you should have do should have done, but you didn't. A lot of that stuff comes from, I think, subconscious hangups of, of who we are and, and working through that is I think an awesome way to uh, make ourselves and, and the athlete and give our, the athletes and teams we serve a better experience uh, also just even listening to like, um, uh, Brett Bartholomew talk about ideas of like, everybody knows everybody's studied training to the ends of the earth, speed and lifting. I mean, that's so study, but how do we communicate with our athletes and establish culture and, and, and break through with our athletes is definitely understudied. And I just think that that's been, I, I've known it from square one, but it's become truer and truer and truer and a more important part to me as I've gone through this. Also, just learning to help athletes get um, an insight into the mind of an athlete. Um, it's funny. When I used to work at like Wilmington College, I would hear coaches say, oh, that athlete didn't do that good today. It's all in their head. They just had a mental block. And at my own time and in my own arrogance and lack of experience, I would think, oh, that's just an excuse because you didn't train their program. Well. You didn't train them to peak well enough. You you didn't have all the X's and O's figured out, or maybe you ran them too hard the week before, or whatever. Um, but the more I go, the more I go through this, the more I realize there's so many subconscious hangups that can cause athletes to uh, falter when it, it meets that it matters most. And I, it was a I bought a Percy Cerutti book after hearing Dan John speak so highly of him. And one of the chapters, and I totally believe this, is what separates the best coaches from the average coach is the ability to see inside the mind and connect and understand the mind of the athlete. And to, again, it goes back to the pipes too. The, can you stimulate an athlete physically, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally? Um, and to understand what direction and what communication avenue and how to have an athlete achieve their highest performance from a mental perspective. I've seen athletes who take the mental side seriously, who go through the visualization or meditation or even listening to uh, tracks that are like sport hypnosis based tracks, 
who have by far exceeded what anyone thought that they would do. And when they tell me about their competition, it, it play it played out just like they visualized it or they meditated on or they did the hypnosis series on. And it is it's awesome to see that stuff in action. It's uh it's it's powerful. The mind is powerful and it makes training simpler. If you could really reduce things to the fundamental elements of a simple but maximally mentally intentful training program, something that's designed to around uh, what the athlete will best respond to from their neurology, but then coupled with a very directive uh, mental training program. That, I, I mean, if you, you could take like half of the energy, uh, for me too, like if I took half of the energy I, I looked at early in my career, dissecting all the little nuts and bolts of all these training programs and ideas, or even reading stuff that uh, kind of wasn't ultimately that serving, um, like stuff that was probably more along the lines that intended for bodybuilding and, 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 and powerlifting uh, and training in athletes, and instead directed that towards all, all things mental training, I would have think I could have served my athletes much better. And I think that's the directive that a lot of training is going to head. If the mind is intent on doing something, I think you heard this in the Jerome Simeon podcast, it's um, the body will make it happen. And so if we can plant these things in the mind, our body's capable. I mean, our brains are plastic and our we have an incredible ability to carry out skills if the intent is there, especially primal skills, skills that, and this is just my kind of thoughts, like skills that are really wired, hardwired into how our body operates and what we've done throughout the years as human beings, but or things we've done to practice and get good at. But it's um, I think we spend a lot more time um, I think we could spend more time of our whole educational and practical and hands-on experience getting involved with mental training. So that's where I've headed. Uh, and that was just a few things that I'd like to talk and share about. You kind of look at um, who am I, what am I doing, how do I coach my athletes, how has my ideas and opinions and beliefs changed throughout the years. Uh, well, there are a few. And so I hope that was able to, if nothing else, uh, you, you always hear me every week kind of talking and speaking with these brilliant guests and I've learned so much from them. And I hope that you've learned from just seeing kind of my direction and where I've gone in the field. So uh, we'll see you guys back next week with another great guest. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. Uh, great site, blog, uh, great offerings of any sport tech. So we're grateful to have them as a sponsor. Check them out. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one. Thank you.